speaker, the microphone. Otherwise, I can move closer and just shout louder for those that are hard hearing. So, either way. (laughs) Well, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for another beautiful day. Thank you for the rain that's uh, been spotted over the last few days, but it just gives new life to things. And you, uh, you're timely, always, and I'm thankful for that. Thank you for air conditioning. We just pray for uh, Dwight and Jane as they're on vacation and for the other. We have many other items on our prayer sheet that we will be praying for. Just thank you that you have everything under control. And uh, we look forward to what you have in store for us tonight. Just give me the words to say and just that it would be sweet fellowship as we uh, go over the scripture tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. First, I want to say thanks to Albert for uh, preaching last Sunday night and giving your testimony. We uh, were blessed with Vince in the morning with Psalm 23, so it was a good Sunday. And just uh, appreciate those that are filling in for Pastor while, while he's out. So it's always, always good. Um, I'm going to do a little bit of a repeat. I taught in 1 John, boy, I don't, I don't know how many years ago it was now, but I always liked 1 John. So when I was filling in tonight, I thought I'm going to go back and just kind of review some things that I taught on there. We probably won't go in as much depth, and I'm not going to give you the whole overview of the book of John. Otherwise, we wouldn't have any time to talk about the verses. So needless to say, John's. I always like John's writings. He's kind of a speaks from a pastor's heart. Well, Paul oftentimes addressed the Jewish people. Um, John was one that went to a lot more of the uh, Gentiles, the community where he was at in Ephesus and, and his, his region. But uh, he was the oldest apostle that alive, I guess. I think he was in his 80s when he wrote this, uh, most likely is what they think. Um, but I imagine that, you know, if you're the last apostle standing, i got to believe that you'd have an audience um, and uh, his words are definitely worth listening to at that time, and I'm thankful that they're worth listening to even here and now. <laughs> That's for sure. So anyway, we're going to go over the first nine verses. I think that's probably enough intro into First John. And um, again, First John is John's apostolic eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. Um, and it was John, Peter, and James that were three of the closest apostles of Jesus. And it's with this foundational background that John can give the historic account of Jesus' earthly ministry. How about, can I have somebody read the first four verses? We'll go through those, and then I'll kind of dissect a little bit at a time. Who wants to do that? Yes, John. Yeah, chapter 1, and we'll go 1 through 4. What do you notice about some of the verbs and things that are used in these first few verses here? I want to be a little interactive tonight, so I know it's a smaller group. What are some things that you notice there? Seen? What else? 
heard, looked, touched. A lot of sensory things, right? Do you remember, you may, may know this, but why do you think you use so many of those sensory words like that in here? Can you remember some of the background? Oh, we'll, we'll cover a little more. Is an eyewitness? Yeah, that's right. That's right. We'll, we'll pick up a little bit more here on this. Um, I'm going to start with uh, verse 1 for a second here, and then we'll get into a little bit more of the senses here. And I think it will make a lot more sense. How's that? Now, I should say no pun intended because that's always what Dwight says, right? So, um, But anyway, the verse 1... When, I remember when I first was reading First John, or when I was younger, and I saw that which was from the beginning, and I kind of got excited. I thought, well, that sounds almost like John 1.1, doesn't it? But if you remember in John 1.1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. But that was talking about Jesus' relationship to creation. He is God. He was in the beginning. This is not so much looking at that aspect. This is really establishing um, the fact that says that which was from the beginning, um, which we have heard and which we have seen. The apostles weren't there at creation, right? So they couldn't have said, oh, yeah, I was there. It's not that same beginning. They're talking about, John's talking about Christ when he was born, basically. Their time with Jesus. So they're establishing that close relationship saying, hey, I knew this person, I was with him, I saw him, I touched him, I was with him. So it's really dealing with his incarnation and Jesus coming to earth. Like you had said, it's the establishment of the fact of the eyewitness account, which is very important. And and I think it adds a lot of credence to John's words as we look at this. So anyway, that's, that's really in the beginning, that's what that is referring to. Then as we look at verse 2 again, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled. Dealing at this this time as well was dealing with the Gnostics. Anyone remember the Gnostics? So the Gnostics, I had some other notes here that I wanted to read to you and see if this makes sense. And the Gnostics believed that... Um, They were influenced by such philosophers as Plato. Um, They believed that matter was inherently evil and the spirit was good. So if you start thinking about it, if Jesus was human, that's material, that's bad, right? But the spirit world is good. They denied Christ's true humanity, which again, that would preserve him from the evil that we just, just mentioned. They believed in an elevated knowledge, higher truth, known only to those um, in on the deep things, you might say. And there was some mysticism involved with this as well. Instead of divine revelation standing as judge over man's ideas, man's ideas judge God's revelation. So some asserted that Jesus' physical body was not real, but only seemed to be physical. Um, Christ's spirit descended on the human Jesus. Uh, at his baptism, but left him just before his crucifixion. These are all things that they believed. Um, These heretical views destroy not only the true humanity of Jesus, but also the atonement. Sin committed in the physical body did not matter. One could deny sin even existed. 
So with that background, and you see what John is saying, I have seen him, I have touched him, I have listened to him. You understand where he was hitting was that I think he was probably addressing some of those Gnostics that were in the crowd or that had a big influence. So he's saying, look, I saw him, the other apostles saw him, heard him, touched him, he is real, and what you're teaching is wrong, basically. That's what he was really saying. So it kind of goes back to the authority that Christ has given to the apostles as well. Does that make sense or any comments on that? We don't have those problems today, do we? Any Gnostics out there in the world? Sounds kind of similar to some of the things we have here, right, with higher education and, and all of those things. I don't know if they deal with the physical being matter that's evil and the spirit good, but there are some things in here that, that still prevails today. Um, When we say, see the sea, a note that I had here was John saw the miracles that Jesus had done. They were not some mystical event, but truly happened. There were over 35 recorded miracles in the four Gospels. Um, but again, that's only a small amount. You know, in John 21, 25, it says, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So we know of the items that the Lord wanted us to know, but there's many, many other items that he did. Stephen Cole writes this about uh, having looked upon. He said, This is not just a repetition of what we have seen with our eyes, but it's a step further. Um, the Greek verb means careful and deliberate vision, which interprets its objects. Uh, we derive our English word theater from it, it is the word that John 1.14 uses in the gospel when he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John was especially referring to his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration when he and Peter and James saw Jesus glorified, uh, or Jesus' glory unveiled. And again, in handling and touching, it's the same words used as um, after Jesus' resurrection when he appeared to the disciples. When in Luke twenty-four thirty-nine, he says, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And then in John twenty twenty-seven, then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. So we get the context, right? John's continual emphasis is on uh, the sensory perceptions, the touching, the feeling, to counter what the, um, the Gnostics were saying. Um, let me also look at verse 2 here. And then concerning the word of life, that phrase, again in John 1, 1, Jesus is referred to as the word and here Jesus is referred to as the word of life. Both of those references encompass the main idea that the word is Jesus. And again, we talked about John 1.14 already. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It is the fundamental message that John is going to expand on. And that is Jesus is God, and Jesus became flesh and dwelt 
among us. So why would John start out with using this type of language? Well, again, I think I've already mentioned, you know, one is to confront the Gnostics. It also affirms what John and the apostles had witnessed and give account for, which was Jesus' incarnation. It's also a reminder to the church about the foundational truth of Jesus being the word of life. He came in the flesh, and he doesn't want them to be swayed in their persuasion. Um, Any comments on the first two verses? Probably if CNN existed back then, it would be unconfirmed sources claim that instead of here they could say, no, I saw him. I'll give you other names. You know, James saw him. Other people did. And I think that's a big difference. So you're absolutely right. I think that's exactly what we, what we were going for. Anyone else? All right, we'll go into verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. Again, I'm going to just read a couple of quotes from Stephen Cole. I used some of his material back in the day when I was, was reviewing it. and really liked some of his study. But he said, The Gnostics claimed that the truth about Christ was a deep mystery or a secret only known by a few. They were deliberately exclusive. But John counters their error by showing that True Christianity is not exclusive and hidden. Rather, it is a message that by its very nature must be proclaimed. And I think that's a very, very appropriate. Uh, the apostles proclaimed Christ on the authority of being an eyewitness to his testimony. And again, testify is a legal term meaning to bear a witness. And again, I think at that time I didn't have all this written down, but I believe it was you had to have two or more in a court to testify or to, to be a witness, to be credible. Does that sound right? I think that's correct, isn't it? At least two people to confirm it. So when you say John was and the apostles were, boy, that adds up to quite a few people, which is very good. Um, the apostles proclaimed Christ on the authority of commission or proclamation when they said, you know, to declare. Proclaim means to report or announce as a messenger. Um, again, that Jesus, the apostles came to proclaim the good news about Jesus' life, his teaching, his death, and the resurrection. They did not launch the church because they were a bunch of religious entrepreneurs or franchisers promoting their business, but they were under orders from Jesus Christ, and they weren't free to change the message to fit the customers, so to speak. They had to proclaim the message that the king had commanded them. And I think, you know, if you read through what the apostles, all of them, proclaimed that message to their death. 
And that's pretty incredible when you think about that. So it also gives credence to their authority that Christ had given to them to, to proclaim the truth. They not only proclaimed it, they lived it, and they were consistent with that truth. And that's what the Bible and our churches are, are built off of. Now we have the written word is what we have for the proclamation. John and some of the other apostles wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the words that God wanted us to receive. And through these writings, we can enter into the same fellowship with God that the apostles enjoyed. There's two parts to the fellowship that's described. One is the fellowship with God and Jesus. Another one is the fellowship with his people. They go hand in hand, don't they? Um, the Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. And I know that there used to be many women's groups and men's groups and other groups named koinonia in churches. You probably find that all over the place. Fellowship, right? That word is used uh, 20 times in the Bible. And uh, just again, we are partakers in Christ and we have salvation through Christ, that sweet fellowship. In Philippians 1, 3 through 6, I'm just doing it old school tonight, not having any presentation, so you can follow along. How's that? Um, it says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you, for, uh, for you all with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So again, what's the source of our fellowship? Anyone, anyone? It's the gospel, right? It's the proclaimed truth, what Jesus did, who he was and what he did for us. It's the gospel. That's what our sweet fellowship is. And I think, you know, I even think about as, I know we've, been to a number of churches uh, just where we lived, and it doesn't take long when you find out you're of like faith. Isn't there a sweet fellowship automatically with believers? I, I've always found that. If, and there's also not a sweet fellowship if you're unbelievers. <laughs> but I think that that is a common bond. And, um, and, and you see that both in the local church as well as the universal, if you really look at it that way. So that sweet fellowship is, is based on the gospel. I think other ways fellowship looks, it's based on prayer, encouragement, and exhorting one another. We, we do all of that as a body. And again, who's not included in that fellowship? Well, it's really the unbelievers. And we're going to see a few verses in here next that's going to talk about the light and the darkness and do a contrast between those. All right, First John 1, 4. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Joy is kind of a central theme in this verse 1. And I think joy um, comes through that understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and that sweet fellowship. But he wants us to have joy. Again, these things we write to you that your joy or our joy may be full. John's writings were all about pointing unbelievers to salvation and his gospel. And here in 1 John, he's encouraging believers to continue in the faith that was set before them. It is the gospel or good news. We oftentimes think about if there's somebody that maybe doesn't know the Lord, we say, hey, what would be a good book to read? The book of John, right? So that you might believe, might understand. Well, I think equal true is for believers, First John is a great book to read. Because I think it, it does the contrast of if you're in the faith or not. And it kind of is a good gut check is kind of what I call it. 
um, to say, here's, the, here's what a believer looks like, here's what an unbeliever looks like. And I think there's also great assurances in First John when you read that. So it, it is a great book. I think we also see joy when we hear of one that repents. Isn't that a cool thing? Um, 3 John verse 4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Joy is first found in our relationship with God, and then it's found in fostering that common bond of salvation with the sweet fellowship of believers. Anyway, any comments on those next two verses, verses 3 or 4? Is everyone joyful tonight? All right. Can I get somebody to read verse 5 for me? We'll take one here. Thanks. Very good. So I think this verse kind of sums up the, the first ones that we had a little bit. In that First John 2, the life Jesus was manifested. He came incarnate in the flesh, right? And we, which was John and the apostles, have seen him. He bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and it was manifested to us. So John continues to emphasize that message, that this message came from Jesus. They heard it from Jesus himself. And it really is uh, an authoritative statement. It, it, it really validates their apostleship, really. And now he starts to get into a distinction. What do you think of when you think about that contrast, the light and the darkness? What does the light represent? Righteousness? Yeah? What else? Purity? Yeah? Yeah? I'm thinking also of holiness. The kind of, it's, all of those are kind of wrapped up in that, that word. How about darkness? Evil? Yeah. The world portrays things as light and dark, don't they? I was thinking, I, I don't know if it was true or not, but we used to always joke about it when you'd come into the locker room at night after a game or something, you'd flip on the light and the roaches would just kind of scatter. You know, the, the, the light repels those things that you don't want to see, basically. And uh, I think about even darkness. And your parents, and I've probably said this before, but... I always remember if I stayed out late, you know, my mom or dad would always say, there's nothing good that happens at night, you know, late at night. So, Well, you being a police officer, you can probably say the same thing. There's not too many good things that happen at uh, after hours, right? Not very often. Usually I'm sure that people are a little bit uh, not sober and, among other things, have other things intoxicating them at that time, so... But I think the, the key here is now John is starting to do the contrast between light, which really is, is the goodness of God or the holiness, and he compares that. And, you know, we know that there is no darkness in God. Uh, dark and darkness and night all commonly refer to sin and to evil. John 3, verses 19 through 20 says, And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. All right, let's see. 
Why do you think that John starts out by talking about God's holiness in this verse in relationship to fellowship? Why didn't God why didn't John talk about God's love? Any ideas? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of the big Mhm. Yep. That's right. And what did they think? They thought just because we were humans or matter that we were evil, right? Well, he's, he's kind of contrasting that whole thought here. So, yeah, I think that's a big one right there, John. Um, they didn't believe that you could have fellowship with God since they were human and God is spirit. Uh, the same thinking removes sin from the spiritual aspect since they saw separation. They could live how they wanted since the physical didn't matter to the spiritual. And again, they were putting man-made philosophies in first instead of God. I think, again, it sounds a lot like today when you really think about it. A lot of people put themselves first and really don't have, um, don't think about eternal things too much, do they? So some of the same thing, while John's not addressing maybe our current culture, it certainly speaks to it. That's for sure. All right, now here's the next trick. I'm going to have somebody read verse 6, 8, and 10. I'm going to skip some things because 6, 8, and 10 all have a theme around them. So can I have somebody read verse 6, 8, and 10? Okay, go ahead. Who is we that's being talked about here? Think. Your brother? Anyone else? People of the world? Yeah, I think that's probably more more in that sense. You're 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 kind of right, Albert, but I think in this sense we're probably talking about um, those. I'll say the heretics, it's, it's a hypothetical statement, so it's a little bit of a trick statement, really. Because uh, if they're saying that they're doing this, but yet their actions are the other, we know then that a believer couldn't stay in those actions, right? So I think those are the key things. And just, you know, real quick, people say, I have fellowship, but what do they do? They walk in darkness. The result is that they're lying and they do not practice the truth. Verse 8, they say they have no sin. And we hear people today, um, some pretty big dignitaries that will say, I- I'm not a sinner. What have I done wrong? I'm good to people, right? They say that, but yet they're deceiving themselves. And again, the truth is not in us. Verse 10, they say that I've not sinned. They're making God a liar. And again, the result, his word is not in us. So John's really saying that they're unbelievers in these, these cases because their words are not matching up with their actions. They're not living a life or walking in, in a life that exemplifies godliness. We're not talking about a carnal Christian here, but we're really saying it's one that has habitually never done these things. They may say it, but they really have never done those things. Again, fellowship with God, the requirement is to have a saving faith, period. 
mean, that's the bottom line definition, isn't it? To have fellowship with him. We need to walk in the truth. And we need to have a repentant heart. Having a repentant heart really says, my way is not the highway. I'm going to change my direction. My direction now is pointed towards Christ and Christ's likeness. And that's where I want to habitually have my direction be to follow him. All right, any comments on those verses? Yeah. old adage of he who defines a word wins right well i think in today's world if you're kind of thinking about it yourself you kind of define your own word right and what's truth and again john's pointing out if you base your truth on the bible the word this is the definition right now people today may reject that and say well that's not my authority they're going to stay in their worldview but if you really look at the word of god He's defining what truth is, and that truth is fellowship, that sweet fellowship with Jesus and his the believing heart, believing in him. So, yeah. Any other comments on there? Yeah. Nope, you're right. And, and quite frankly, that's, you know, you try to, sit down and reason with somebody, but you really almost just have to pray that the Holy Spirit will touch their lives to have understanding. And I think we see in other verses there where it just says, you know, that they're not understanding. The Holy Spirit hasn't really, they haven't grasped the truth, right? So yeah, you're absolutely right. All right, well, let's finish up with the last two verses that I wanted to cover today. And that's verse 7 and verse 9. So I'll let somebody read those two odd number verses. Yeah. Very good. I can't help but think that verse 7, I know in, in my One Another series on Sunday morning, when we talked about the difference between what, what God says, love one another as I have loved you, right? That's the new commandments really representing grace. But I can't help but see here in verse 7 when he says, "Walk." but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, again, Jesus is our example in this case, right? It's not our own basis to determine what's right. No, it's as we saw Jesus walk in the light. And I think that's a key thing here. And again, the result, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Believers walk in the light. Unbelievers walk in darkness. Christ is our example. In 1 John 2, 6, he continues with that theme. And he says, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk, just as he walked. 
Um, and again, I've talked about that before. To walk is that idea of you're really just living life. Uh, it's a daily process. The fellowship described in verse 7 appears to be between God the Father and the believer. As it relates back to verse 6, it's also true that believers have fellowship with one another uh, because they have fellowship with God the Father. And I think that's, again, where that's our example, right? If you have the one, we should have the other. We should love one another. We should be encouraging and exhorting one another as, as believers in Christ. Fellowship with God always brings us into fellowship with true believers, and they're always linked together. And it appears that the heretics had departed from the church and that the believers did not have fellowship with those unbelievers. First John 2.19 says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. So they weren't having fellowship. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. And again, verses 6, 8, and 10, we said we're really describing, describing um, non-believers. Um, the blood of Jesus is cleansing. It's a present term, present tense, the one who is walking in the light. Um, this doesn't mean that one has to be sinless, which no one can do, right? Rather, it points to a habitual pattern of living openly before God. And then also confessing sin is part of walking in the light. We experience God's forgiveness, his cleansing, and cleansing when we confess sin. Let's go on here. I want to just make a note, verse 9. First John 1 John 1.9 is probably one of my favorite verses, and, and just because... You know, you think back, there's not a lot of verses I remember where I memorized it, but for some reason I remember this verse, and uh, I think it was when I was in first grade, and it just connected with me. And actually, Mrs. Peck, I think, was my Sunday school teacher at the time. So if you think about some of those handouts that you get, the kids get, once in a while it clicks, but I had a few of those that, that I remembered. But I always think if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I think really that verse, now as I get older, you kind of realize this isn't talking about a salvation verse. It's really a sanctification verse, isn't it? If we confess is really saying when we confess, just as we walk with the Lord, when we are convicted by the Holy Spirit, what does he want us to do? He wants us to confess that sin. And get right with him. We don't lose our salvation for any of that. But it's one of being right with God. And I think that's really the context that I see with this is is that when we confess our sins, he is always faithful to forgive us. And that is a great thing. Um, I don't know if you've ever had anybody where maybe you've sinned against them or or something and they won't forgive you. That's a miserable thing (laughs) to think about. But thank God that we can come to our Heavenly Father and he says, forgiveness is here for you. You just need to come. Think about when our kids get into trouble or something, you know, you just wait for them. You might know what they did. You just wait for them to come to you to confess it so that you can put your arms around them and say, I forgive you. You know, don't do it again, (laughs) but I forgive you. And I think it's a great picture that to know that forgiveness is, is always there is faithful. 
And I think that's part of an attribute of God. God is faithful. He does forgive. Any thoughts on that? Anyone else have anything on that verse? I, I, yeah. I, I think it is, it is talking to believers, although I think there's an application. Certainly repentance is involved in an unbeliever coming to know the Lord. But I think this is really more in, in lines with a believer. Yeah, that's what I would say. I think I stole some of my thoughts here, so I won't go back and read them again to you. I think that's mean thoughts for the night, so I'll I'll stop there. I have one more thing I'll read, which I thought was kind of an interesting little little story. But, um, yeah, I'm thankful for these verses and uh, the richness of 1 John. And like I said, I think 1 John 1.9 is a great one to end on. And I think it even gives us great confidence as believers. You know, when I said that it can help to assure you of your salvation, it also gives you great confidence to know that even if we mess up big time, you know, which hopefully we don't, but that God is a loving God and he will forgive. And we want to stay right and have a right attitude towards him so it doesn't give us, you know, it's that whole liberty that we have. We don't want to just go off for selfish reasons. But if we do mess up sometime or sin, we have a forgiving God. And he wants us to come back. Sometimes when we're waiting in our sin, though, that's the last thing we want to do is confess it and go to our Father. But I think he's saying, I want to be the first one you go to. I want to have that relationship with you and restore it. Um, Let me just read this other story that uh, I think Stephen Cole had this night. Or a daily, it was in the Daily Bread back in 1977. But it says, in the 18th century, an abbot was dis, uh, disciplining two monks for some infraction of the rules. He imposed on them the rule of silence. They could not talk to one another. They tried to figure out some way to fill the long hours. Finally, one of them gathered 28 flat stones from the courtyard, putting a different number on each of them. He devised a new game. By using gestures, the men agreed on certain rules, but the most difficult part was to keep silent when one of them scored a victory. Then they remembered that they were permitted to say aloud the prayer, Dixit Nominos Domino Meal. By using the one word in this Latin expression, meaning Lord, the winner was able to signal his triumph by yelling, Domino! The monks gave the impression that they were praying, but really, they were playing. Thus, the game of dominoes was born. Stephen Cole says, It's easy to put on a religious veneer by claiming that you have fellowship with God, when really, you're walking in the darkness and deceiving yourself. John doesn't want us to play spiritual dominoes. He wants us to experience genuine fellowship with the Holy God by walking in the light as he himself is in the light. So keep that in mind the next time you play dominoes, all right? (laughs) Any last words from anybody? Otherwise, thanks for your patience, and we'll uh, go into some prayer requests.